This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature, not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I am joined with my beautiful gal pal Jessica. Hello. Hello. And today is going to be part two out of three into JFK. We ran into that thing again where <laughs> we're like, it's going to be a two-parter. And then we recorded it and we're like, no, just kidding. Right. <laughs> so here's how it's going to go, guys. We're getting back on track after Murphy's Law this last couple weeks has occurred. So here's what's going to happen. Here in part two, I am going to pick up where I left off in part one. So from when they pronounced JFK dead. And to kind of make it not so confusing because a lot of things go on at once, I am going to finish up the timeline on the Kennedy side. And then from there, we will start into the conversation with Lee Harvey Oswald. And then I will end this episode with the Warren Commission. So day of the assassination. He has been shot. He had his last rites, been pronounced dead at 1 p.m. Now, the public announcement of the president's death would occur at 1.33 p.m. local time by the White House acting press secretary, Malcolm Kilduff. And he says, quote, President John F. Kennedy died approximately at 1 p.m. Central Time today here in Dallas. He died of a gunshot wound to the brain. I have no other details regarding the assassination of the president, end quote. And if you remember uh, Governor Connolly, who was also in the same vehicle and was shot as well, he had went into surgery at this time. So apparently there was an understandable, in my opinion, riff between the doctors there in Texas and the Secret Service because the Secret Service wanted to be like, boom, 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 get the president's body on the plane and back home really quick, Mm -hmm. which is kind of to be expected. But apparently under Texas law, the coroner there, Earl Rose, should have been the one to do the autopsy and all of that there in that hospital before he was moved. And there's a, of course, like a big back and forth going on, but eventually he backs down and he lets the Secret Service take the president. 
LBJ would be sworn in as the next president because he was VP, of course, at 2.38 p.m. And Jackie surprised everyone by being there. And it was also noted, fun fact, she is the first and only woman to swear in a president. Go Jackie O. Right? I came across that fun fact like last minute. I was looking up something Jessica had asked me about and I came across this article that was like five facts you may not know. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and then I heard and then I read that one and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Another reason to love Jackie O. Okay, so after that, they load up at the airfield to go back home. And the autopsy would be conducted at Bethesda Naval Hospital at the request of Jackie. And she had requested this due to his prior military service that we had talked about last episode. And the autopsy itself would go from 8 p.m. till 1230 a.m., putting us into Saturday 1123. The original Bethesda autopsy report is included with something I'll talk about later called the Warren Commission. And basically, long story short with the autopsy, it concluded that the bullet passed entirely through the president's neck from a level over the top of the scapula and lung and through the lower throat. And if you would like to actually read the original autopsy report in full, you can. I found it in PDF form and it's on the sources page. Also, there's a Wikipedia of the autopsy, but I have to warn y'all, there are actual photos on there from the autopsy and stuff. So like be forewarned because like there's pictures and stuff on wikis usually, right? In the middle. But like, I don't know. I didn't expect it just to be totally honest with you because it's like there's one of the back of his head, which like that one, I don't know, you can't really see too much, so it's okay. But there's one where they have him on his back and you can see where they had done like the, uh, what is that called? The trachea uh, something where they cut into your neck to try to make it so you can breathe. Yeah, I just know it's called a trach something. Yeah. So, and it's like his eyes are open and like, it's just, oh my gosh, I was not prepared for that photo because it's like shoulders up. Anyway, this autopsy is looked at over the years again. And uh, that's conspiracy territory. So I'll stay out of that. So another interesting fact, but again, makes sense, is that all network TV actually canceled commercials during all of this so they could have continuous coverage of the events happening. Because obviously the news of the assassination of the president and then his death spread like wildfire as soon as that announcement was made in Texas, right? And things would go rather quickly. So once they were done with the autopsy, Gawker's funeral home would perform the embalming and restoration procedures on JFK at Bethesda. And the original casket he was transported in got damaged in transit, so it was disposed of. So nobody would be able to, you know, snag it up, use it for any kind of monetary gain, things like that. And Jackie was said to stay by his side until the casket was placed in the East Room. Like, she didn't even go change. She was still in her pink bloodstained outfit, which is just so heartbreaking. And she would also request that two Catholic priests would stay with him until the funeral, which they did. And also with that, they had an honor guard of some Green Beret members from Fort Bragg that was also requested and there as well. 
Now, with this funeral stuff, Jackie insisted that they follow the protocol of Lincoln's funeral, which is interesting. And then with that, she told this to the chief usher. His name was J.B. West, and they honored her requests. So at 1.08 p.m. on Sunday, November 24th, 1963, his coffin was carried out of the White House. And of course, Jackie and their two kids, Carolyn and John Jr., were there. It was carried by, I don't know how to say this word, so I'm sorry, guys, Um, a horse-drawn caisson. Basically, these horses, like, took it down the road with the honor guard to the Capitol Rotunda, where the president would lay in state. And it was, you know, placed with, like, a decorated wooden frame. It was the same one used for Abraham Lincoln. And for almost a full day, for 21 hours, they had him there in this Capitol Rotunda. And over 250,000 people came by to pay their respects to JFK. Wow, that's a lot. Right? It's insane. They were like, yes, we expected a decent turnout, but we didn't expect that. And there's more, too, as we go. So LBJ, he's noted to place a wreath at the foot of the casket. And then Jackie, with her daughter, they kiss the coffin. And Jackie and her kids are leading the procession to go to St. Matthew's Cathedral, which is where the service is held. And it was said that over 800,000 people were out to watch the procession go. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, obviously it broke the heart of so many people. Like, so many people are crying and grieving and everything through this. And the president is drawn by the four horses again, including a riderless horse. His name was Blackjack. And he was said to be a, quote, magnificent black gelding. With this, it had an empty saddle and saber, and the boots were reversed in the stirrups. This is said to be one of the highest military honors bestowed upon the fallen. So they would arrive, JFK's body would arrive to St. Matthew's at 12.14 p.m. And of course, with services for presidents, past presidents, there's always a ton of really important people there. Some of the guests noted were past presidents Truman and Eisenhower, and there was also 53 heads of state there as well. And this service would last an hour and 16 minutes, and then JFK would be taken over to Arlington, where they, when they got there, they played taps at 3.07, and he would be lowered into the ground for burial at 3.34. After this, it was said that this is when Jackie lit the eternal flame. Now, I am going to transition to Lee Harvey Oswald and all of this stuff with him. So before I get into what he was doing the day of the assassination, I felt it was really important to include some background on him. Let me be real, not only for more context for myself, because like I'm obviously familiar with this assassination, like we watched a documentary and talked about it in college in one of my classes, but like I had never done a deep dive. I just hadn't. So I wanted to do it for myself. And then thinking about it for the episodes, I was like, we need it here too. Oh, I will also mention like, if you want like a super, super deep dive on him, I noticed on Hulu, I think it was, I don't think it was Netflix. There's quite a few like documentaries and stuff you can watch. And then was your thing you watched, was that on him or was that on just the assassination? It was just on the assassination. Okay. The only problem with a lot of like Oz I have in the past because there was like a particular docudrama that I watched that made me even want to learn more, kind of like Tara. And I did watch a lot of stuff on Oswald, a lot of the same information because yeah, the truth is, is like we're never really going to know. Yeah, exactly. 
So Lee was born in New Orleans, Louisiana on October 18, 1939 to Robert Edward Lee Oswald Sr. and Marguerite Frances Claviri. His father would pass away from a heart attack two months before he was born. Now, during his childhood, they would move around quite a bit. He obviously lived with his mom. They lived in New Orleans. They'd go to Texas. They'd go up to New York City, come back down. Like, they moved around a bit. And when they had went up to New York City, they were living with his half-brother, whose name was also John, and John's wife for a bit. But they were allegedly kicked out slash asked to leave after an incident that occurred where where Lee had hit his mom and then pulled out a pocket knife on John's wife and threatened her. Also, during the seventh grade, which is when he was up there, he got into trouble for truancy and had been noted for his temper, like his bad temper, and also being withdrawn all throughout his childhood. I'm sorry. Like, he got in trouble for being withdrawn, but when he's not withdrawn, he fights people. Like, let the fucker be just by himself. (laughs) Right, exactly. But this is the 50s, so, you know. True. And because of the truancy thing, he had his case looked at. Also, he had been taken to a, essentially a juvie. It said juvenile reform. Affirmatory, but you know, same thing. They decided they needed to do a psych eval on him. So they did. And the doctor who did it was Dr. Hartogs. And they described him as immersed in a quote, vivid fantasy life, turning around the topics of impotence and power through which he tries to compensate for his present shortcomings and frustrations, end quote. And the conclusion that Dr. Hartogs came to was, quote, Lee has to be diagnosed as a personality pattern disturbance with schizoid features and passive-aggressive tendencies, end quote. Which I'm like, if he's a passive-aggressive person, shit, like, fucking half the Karens in the world are. Like, come on, what the fuck? (laughs) But okay. (laughs) Anyone named Karen listen to this? You're amazing because, obviously, if you're a Karen Karen, you probably would not be here. Please don't take offense to that. Sorry. So, Lee had also been seen, on top of the other things mentioned, as emotionally very disturbed, who suffered under the impact of a really existing in a emotional isolation and deprivation, lack of affection, aka mommy ignored him. And then also with this absence of a, you know, solid family life, it just fucked with him too. And just the mix of all the rejection by his mother just messed him up royally, essentially is what this doctor said. So, Dr. Hartogs also recommended that Lee be placed on probation, seeing that he would go and get quote, psychotherapeutic guidance with, like, one of the local family agencies. And there was a social worker who you know, had talked to him at one of the places he was at, one of the youth houses, and said he was a rather pleasant, appealing quality about this emotionally starved, affectionless youngster, which grows as one speaks to him. So basically, she's saying, like, he opens up once he's actually got some trust in you type of thing. But he detached himself from everybody else and was withdrawn because, like, nobody really showed him love type of thing. So he's like, why fucking bother is what they're trying to say. And they actually wanted to remove him from his mother's custody so they could try to get him back on track with school and everything. But essentially, when he heard this, he was like, oh, no, no, no. And he started, like, straightening up, quote, quote, basically. So they were like, okay. And then after that, before anything else could happen, they just dipped. They just left New York and they went back down south. And I mean, like, it was 1954 when this happened. So yeah, back then, skip town and you probably won't hear back from shit like that most of the time. So 
On top of that, moving ahead in the timeline, it is said that he considered himself a socialist by the age of 15. They have his journals and stuff. There's a quote I found that said, I was looking for a key to my environment, and then I discovered socialist literature. I had to dig for my books in the back of the dusty shelves of libraries. And then at 16, he wrote to the Socialist Party of America for some info on their Young People's Socialist League, and he said that he had been studying all the socialist principles for over a year at this point. And what's interesting with this is some people say that this is bullshit and that he wasn't doing any of this, that basically like some people thought that him joining the Navy was some ulterior motive. But when they talked to like his brother and stuff, he says basically like he had done that to get the fuck away from his mom because he joins the Marines at 17. So while he was on active duty, when they would go to the range and do like shooting test things, he had scored a 212, which was noted to be like the bottom cutoff to be a sharpshooter. But then they renew those pretty frequently. He had went and done it again, and he scored a 191, which would put him down to a marksman, which it's just kind of funny to me because it's like, that's not really any, like, people act like, oh my god, he was a marine marksman. It's like, cool. That's like the basic thing. That means you know how to use a gun. Yeah. And can hit a target sometimes. <laughs> right? I'm like, I don't know why these documentaries are saying this is so fucking dramatic, because that's what I found interesting, too. They wouldn't even mention about him being a sharpshooter, which would have made a little bit more sense because it's a higher level than the marksman, but they're just like, marksman. I mean, it's because people think the first time was like a fluke. Right. But you know what I'm saying? Like, if they're trying to create this narrative that he's some scary, dangerous sniper, like, you think they would have just been like, I don't care if he was at this one for only two seconds. We're going to highlight that. Well, basically, I mean, this is not spoiling the conspiracy part, but it came out that he wasn't a good shot. That's why they emphasize the lower one, because if they say he ever made sharpshooter, then they're going to have to, like, own up to it. And, I mean, I've shot guns before, and, like, your mental health and your how you feel that day, like, if you were dehydrated, had a headache, like, you're not going to shoot as well. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. A lot goes into it. Right. And so it's like, we don't know what he was feeling. No, I know, but I just like to poke at people. Oh, no, I I agree. Anyways, so during his enlistment, he taught himself Russian some and did some testing with it with the Marines because, like, there's linguistic stuff you could do if you're fluent enough in another language, but uh, he didn't test so well. They were basically like, he could converse okay-ish, but it wasn't anything to write home about, really, at that point. He would also, fun fact, be court-martialed three times. What? Yes, 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 I'm gonna tell you what happened. So one time, he accidentally shot himself in the elbow with an unauthorized 22 handgun. Like, how do you... If he was, like, hiding it, like, in a coat or something? Pulled the trigger too soon? Yeah, that can make sense. Yeah, maybe he was taking it out, and I'm trying to think. But my thought is, like, maybe he had it out, and he wasn't, because they said unauthorized, so maybe he was trying to hide it, and when he did, he pulled the trigger, and let's face it, if anyone in the world was going to do that, that would be me. Like, that's the injury I would get. (laughs) I just read that, and I'm like, this is why gun safety is important, people. Thank you. And so he would be court-martialed a second time. This time was for fighting with a sergeant who he thought had been responsible for his punishment 
in his uh, shooting his elbow thing. And when this happened, he was actually demoted. He went from private first class down to private and was said to be, quote, briefly imprisoned. Then the third time, he was on a nighttime sentry duty in the Philippines and he, uh, quote, inexplicably fired his rifle into the jungle. So now you think, okay, this dude's been court-martialed three times for fucking fuckery. Like, this has to be why he was discharged. But no, it was not. He would actually be given a hardship discharge, which back then was if, like, you had someone who had to be in your care and you had to go take care of them. He was swearing it was his mom. So they discharged him. And there's like, hey, bye. The Marines were like, we just don't really want to look into what else he's been doing. How's your mom? Your mom good? No? Mom's not good? Okay, bye. Yeah, pretty much. So they were like, hey, bye, discharge him. And he went into the reserves. Now, later, that would be changed from, like, just discharge like that to undesirable or some weird phrase like that that they were just like we don't fucking want you (laughs) so my story's true they were like how do we get rid of him pretty much now that he's gone we can fix the paperwork pretty much so his mom and his brother lived in dallas fort worth area and he would go see her for a short visit but after that he would be back on his travels and he would head to russia or the soviet union in october of 1959 he was barely 20 at this time and he was issued a temporary visa on October 14th and it was only for a week so it would expire on October 21st. And as soon as he got there, he actually tried to apply to be a citizen. He was denied. And when... I don't know why I'm laughing. Sorry, it's fucked up. What happens next? Russia doesn't even want him. No, nobody wants him. And then when his guide came to pick him up to like escort him to be like, make sure he actually fucking leaves, he was in the bathtub and had a self-inflicted wound on his wrist. And he was basically like... I wanted to kill myself to shock her. The guide. The guide, yeah. Okay, I was like, who's the her? Because my sexist ass thought it was a dude. No, it was a chick. I was like, wait, who's the her? Yeah, no. And he was then put, of course, into psychiatric care until October 28th. And then when I was, like, reading about this, they were saying the wound was not, it was very, like, not serious, like there's no way he would have died type of thing. (laughs) He's just a flesh wound. Pretty much, yeah. That's pretty much what they were saying. So he'd be there till October 28th. And then on Halloween, so October 31st, he went to the U.S. Embassy to try to denounce his U.S. citizenship. And he told the U.S. Embassy, the officer who was interviewing him, the guy's name was Richard Edward Snyder, that, quote, he had been a radar operator in the Marine Corps and that he had voluntarily stated to unnamed Soviet officials that as a Soviet citizen, he would make known to them such information considering the Marine Corps and his specialty as he possessed. He also said that he might know something of special interest, end quote. That's when the whole, like, hardship, honorable discharge got changed. And yep, oh yeah, it's right here in my notes. Undesirable is what it got changed to because they're like, fuck you. This story of him doing this actually ended up in the Associated Press, also on the front page of some, like, newspapers there in 1959. So it's, like, interesting. So while there, because he hadn't left yet, he had said he wanted to attend Moscow State University, but they were like, "Mm, nah, and they sent him to work in an electronics factory, which produced radios, TVs, and just some other stuff. And then there was a dude who later became like a head of state. He was assigned to teach him 
depression. And then he also received a government-subsidized apartment. It was fully furnished, everything like that, on top of the pay he got from work. So it was said that he lived pretty comfortably for the working class at the time. But they did keep him under, like, continuous surveillance and stuff. They kept an eye on him, obviously. Now, during this time, while he was working, he met a girl and they started dating. Her name was Ella German. And things were okay. Like, she described him as, like, a nice person, sweet. And she was basically like, you know, other men are, like, rough and blah and burly and stuff. And Lee's not like that. Whatever. Well, (laughs) she would hit the fan because there would be a party, right? And his friend brought over this lady friend. And basically, like, it comes out that her and Lee had previous relations and Lee had been doing some lying to Ella and she felt super betrayed because he basically was said, you know, he hadn't done anything like that before with anybody, you know, that type of thing. No, he was lying. So this led to a a big argument, obviously. And then they like took a break essentially for about two-ish weeks. And of course, during that two-ish weeks, he went and slept around with about five other women. And then decided it's time to go back to Ella. I don't even know if they were actually broken up or she was just like, stay the fuck away from me. But yeah, he was out man whoring. We were on a break. (laughs) So he decides it's time to go back to Ella, right? And of course, it's New Year's Eve. So he like goes over there and brings flowers or something and is hanging out with her and her family. And it's all just a nice thing. Well, plot twist again. He decides I'm going to propose to her. It's (gasps) New Year's Eve. She says no. (laughs) <laughs> she says, first of all, you were out putting your dick all over the place. And two, like she said she was just so taken aback by it. She just wasn't expecting that to happen, especially because they had just had this fight and stuff. So she's like, mm, hard pass. So obviously we're in January now and the year is 1961. So after all of this, he had a change of heart about living there. And there's another journal entry that I grabbed a quote from. It said, quote, I am starting to reconsider my desire about staying. The work is drab. The money I get has nowhere to be spent. No nightclubs or bowling alleys. No places of recreation except the trade union dances. I have had enough. End quote. And shortly after this, he wrote to the U.S. Embassy requesting that he be given back his American passport so he could go back to the U.S. And any charges against him dropped. And this was all a thing because, like, yes, he tried to renounce his U.S. citizenship, but it wasn't like anything formal had happened with it. So, like, he could still do this. But while all this is going on, he moves on fast and he meets a woman named Marina Proskova. And they start dating, which led them to have a whirlwind courtship. They were married six weeks into their relationship. And then, to keep up with this theme of moving quickly, the following February in 1962 now, their daughter would be born. After that, the following that May of that year, they went to the U.S. Embassy to get everything situated so Marina could travel to the U.S. with him so they could relocate there, which put them leaving by June. And they had originally went to the same area his mom and brother were at in Dallas-Fort Worth, all that area. And he went through a lot of jobs. He'd be fired most of the time, usually after like a week or so because of his temper. So he pretty much just acted like a jackass every time. And they're like, fucking get out of here. Goodbye. Also, he did something to note during this time. So in March of 1963, he had an alias he would use sometimes that's marked as A. Heidel. 
and he did uh, some retail therapy. He did a mail order and purchased a secondhand six and a half millimeter caliber rifle for $29.95. I was like, damn. <laughs> I know, so cheap. <laughs> right. And he also purchased a 38 Smith & Wesson Model 10 revolver, and they were both delivered to a P.O. box under that name. That's super sketch. Right? I know. It was so funny. And one of the things I was watching about this, they're like, why the fuck would he do this? They like didn't do what they do now when you buy guns. He could literally have just went in there and bought it. (laughs) I'm like, could he? Could he though? Maybe because it was a good like catalog deal or whatever. I don't know. But I'm just like, that's so weird. That's so fucking weird. (laughs) Not even going to send it to my home. I'm going to send it to my PO box because I'm sketch. It's fine. Because I don't want people to know my business. (laughs) Right. So while they were there in Texas, Marina became friends with this woman named Ruth Payne. That docuseries, The American Dynasties Want, I think it's that one she's in. There is one she is in. So they originally had connected and got close because Ruth wanted to learn Russian. The Oswalds would actually end up moving to New Orleans for a short period of time. And Ruth actually went and like drove Marina and the kiddo and stuff. And then while they're there in New Orleans, after a stint of, you know, jobs and being fired quickly yet again, Lee decided it was time for him and his family to go back to Texas. He had Ruth take Marina and their daughter back. And he said, I'll follow up in a few days. I am going to stick around because I have one last unemployment check coming for $33. So once I get that, I will be on my way. So like, okay, bye. And they leave. I was like, ooh, $33. And I was like, oh, that might actually be something. Yeah, it's like in the 60s, so I would assume it'd equate to maybe at least, I don't know, $100, maybe more. I don't know. If it was $33 even, it would be the equivalent of $282.75. Okay. So, okay. I rescind my snarky comment. (laughs) (laughs) So, like I said, you know, Ruth, Marina, little kiddo. That they dipped, okay? And so, uh, no, he did not head straight to Texas. He would actually travel to Mexico. And he was saying he was trying to get to Cuba and then allegedly to go from there to Russia. The Dallas branch of the FBI started becoming interested in him because he got on his radar. The CIA had basically determined and found out that he was in contact with the Soviet embassy again there in Mexico, and they thought this was going to be something like an espionage case. So he was on their radar. And FBI agents actually visited Ruth twice in early November when he wasn't there. I'm I think they were staying with her type of thing because obviously dude can't fucking keep a job. And they spoke to her and kind of like talked to her a little bit and stuff. And then he, after this, Lee took a trip to the FBI office there in Dallas uh, about two to three weeks before the assassination. And he was asking to see Special Agent James P. Hosty. They were like, he's busy. He's not here or whatever. He left a little note. And the receptionist said it read, quote, let this be a warning. I will blow up the FBI and the Dallas Police Department if you don't stop bothering my wife. Signed, Lee Harvey Oswald. And when I was like reading about this and it's like the note allegedly contained a threat. And it's like, yeah, obviously, obviously. (laughs) Allegedly. (laughs) But... The agent, Agent Hostie, he said the note said something different. He said it said, quote, if you have anything you want to learn about me, come talk to me directly. If you don't cease bothering my wife, I will take the appropriate action and report this to the proper authorities, end quote. So there's like, story one, crazy man. Story two, polite, direct. Yes. 
Exactly. And then apparently Agent Hostie said that he destroyed the note because his boss, Gordon Shanklin, told him to after he was named a suspect in the Kennedy assassination. So I don't know. Okay, so obviously, like, Lee's obviously back in Dallas, and he had actually arrived there to kind of, like, get back to the story on October 3rd, 1963. Ruth had a neighbor that worked at the Texas School Book Depository and said they were hiring, so she's like, this is perfect. Lee just got to town. He's looking for a job. I'm going to help my friends out. This is great. So he would get hired by October 16th. And when they asked about like how he was as an employee, they said like they had no complaints about him. He was just an average employee, nothing above the ordinary, like whatever type of thing. So he wasn't really showing his ass. So now I'm going to jump us to the day of the assassination. We know the whole rundown of that timeline from the Kennedy side, right? So when I started looking into this, I was like, okay, well, what the fuck? How do they even fucking like conclude that it was Lee? Fucking tell me. I don't understand. Like, you know, a lot of the stuff I was watching, like they didn't talk about. They're just like, they found this. They arrested him. The end. I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we had to do some research. So there was this Dallas patrolman named Marion L. Baker. He was the motorcycle escorts for the motorcade. So he was just behind like the camera cars and stuff. He said that he had testified that the first shot he could hear was fired after he turned from Main Street onto Houston Street. He had traveled about 60 to 80 feet. And then as he approached the Houston and Elm intersection, he said that he recognized the first shot He's like, I knew it was a high-powered rifle just from hearing it. And he thought that the shots came from the building, quote, either right in front of me, so the book depository, or one across to the right of it, which would be the Dallas Textile Building, which it also says in his little thing, in quotes, Daltex. But he said that he also noticed, like, pigeons being startled and, like, you know, flying away or whatever on the roof of the depository building. And started, like, looking, you know, frazzled and flying and shit. So he went to the corner of Houston and Elm Street, parked his motorcycle, got off, whatever, and was just, like, going through, like, all these people, like, running and screaming because, like, everything was fucking chaos after Kennedy got shot, obviously. And then he heard on the radio the chief say, get some men on that railroad track. So... From here, he ran to the entrance of the depository building. He had, like, his gun out, all of that stuff. And the building superintendent, Roy Truly, was there. And, you know, they met on the first floor. They started yelling for someone to send the elevators down, you know, but there was, like, nobody responding. And then they started climbing the stairs. He said about 90 seconds after the shot rang out, he stepped back onto the second floor and a movement towards the lunchroom from the stairs caught his attention. And who does he come across right now? He comes across Lee and he's got like his gun out and he's like, the fuck you doing? But he says that he let him go because Roy was like, no, 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 that's one of my employees, you know, type of thing. So he's like, okay. And according to the officer, to Baker, he said like he didn't appear nervous out of breath, nothing. Obviously was startled when he saw the gun pointed at him, but he's like, that was fucking normal. Like, you see someone draw a gun on you, you know, you're gonna react. So that's what he said happened then. And then I'll talk about the Warren Commission in a little bit, but it's noted there that this is when Lee is seen by a secretary as he's going through the second floor business office and he had a soda bottle with him. 
and that he left the book depository through the front doors at about 12.33. So the rifle used was reportedly discovered near the sixth floor northwest corner by one of the detectives at 1.22 p.m. So roughly less than an hour later. And essentially it had been placed down between like stacks of boxes and was balanced like upright on the lower edges of its barrel and the wooden stock of it. But before like anybody messed with it and stuff, they had, you know, they got photographs of it and things like that. And there's a lot of video and stuff too. So basically it was kind of estimated that literally as soon as he left, the building was sealed off. So from like 1233 to 1250, which I find interesting because I'm like, why would they lift it? Because they don't find the gun until 122, but okay. But the thing is like that whole plaza right there, the rest of it wasn't sealed off at all. And basically there's, you know, like there's tons of photographers and stuff because obviously they had been there like to get pictures of the president and stuff prior to all the craziness. But it's like they just show cars just driving right through the crime scene, basically. So yikes. So after leaving the depository, it was said that he Lee walked down seven blocks before he got on a bus. And when it got stuck in traffic, he got off and walked to a bus station, got in a taxi and, you know, just got in it. And then he got to his, it says rooming house. So maybe they lived at a boarding house and they were just like at Ruth's all the time. I don't know. But he got there about 1 p.m. And according to... Erlene Roberts, who was like a housekeeper there, she said he left just a couple minutes later, so about like four minutes max. And then she saw him waiting at the bus stop. And something I forgot to mention that comes out way, way later is one of his co-workers that morning, Lee had asked him like, hey, I need to go pick something up. Like, can you take me? Whatever. And he gets this long package. The dude's like, oh, what the fuck is that? And he's like, oh, it's curtain rods. It's fine fine. And he's like, okay. But uh, later he comes out and he's like, yeah, I feel like that was a rifle, but do what you want with that. So like I said, bus stop, all of that stuff. And then at 1.15, he shot and killed a Dallas police officer named J.D. Tippett near the intersection of 10th and Patton Ave. And this was not even a mile. It's literally 0.86 miles from the boarding house. So barely up the road. And it was said that there was tons of eyewitnesses. There was 13 people who saw the shooting and that he immediately took the fuck off. Later, when he was in custody and stuff, he would actually uh, be identified out of like a police lineup by five witnesses. That's a lot. Yeah. And then the following day, a sixth one. So uh, pretty sure that was him. And then there's more. Four more ID'd him through a photo. So basically everybody was like, yes, him. He did it. So after he killed the police officer, he headed towards the Texas Theater, which was on West Jefferson Boulevard. And by 1.35 p.m., and he's on one of these docks, too, this guy who worked as a shoe store manager, they were still open. I don't know. I guess he was just like, oh, my God, I don't know what to fucking do. I'm just going to be in my work, like whatever. But anyway, he says he sees this man come in and just like, do, 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 like acting like nothing had fucking happened. And he's like, that's weird. Okay, whatever. And as soon as he sees like, you know, the police cars and stuff on, he dips out of the store and he goes into the Texas theater movie house. He didn't pay or anything. He just like went in when the attendant wasn't 
paying attention, you know, just like slipped in. And the police would be notified about this. So they would show up to the theater because they were like, this officer's killer's in here. He's got to be. He's got to be. They tried to make the arrest at 1.50 p.m., but he was like resisting arrest and all of this stuff and apparently punched a patrolman. And then he's starting to say, like, I didn't shoot anybody. I didn't do it. Da, da, da. But I'm like, well, at least 10 other people fucking call you out, dude. So no. And obviously they're seeing a man being arrested and all of this stuff. So they like the press, you can see in multiple videos, they're like, did you kill the president? Did you do this? And he's like, no, I didn't. And I'm not being charged with that. Like, da, 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 da. And, you know, all this stuff. And then he apparently he himself got punched by a patrolman. And so over the next two days, you know, they would interrogate him. They would keep him all of this stuff. Right. And I thought what was interesting was like, I mean, I guess it could go either way, but it's like it was brought up in one of the videos. I watched that the FBI, they didn't really talk about how they were surveilling him for all of this stuff. But I'm like, but knowing it now, it was an espionage case. Would they really think instantly, oh, this man also assassinated the president? So I don't know. But there apparently was not good communication between the Secret Service and FBI. And also, fun fact, apparently when they were mapping out the fucking the motorcade, they took note of like how many fucking windows were on this trail. There was a crazy amount, like 20,000 or something. And they didn't have the man power or the team members to like get through all the windows and check them all before. So they were like, fuck it. We're not checking any of them. I'm like, it's an all or nothing thing. Are you fucking kidding me? What? Like, I would pick the most advantageous windows. Like, I would be like, what do we have with clear shots? Exactly. Not like there's that window that's this big and there's a tree slash building in the way. Exactly. I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? And then also... Now, I'm kind of like half and half on this one. So the two Secret Servicemen that mapped out the drive, they were criticized for that because there was a lot of like turns and stuff, which obviously slowed them down more. But I was like, but originally it wasn't supposed to be like a parade, basically. And they also didn't think that like for some reason they didn't think this many people would come out. So like I understand. But at the same time, it's kind of like, eh. Uh, uh. I put more stock into that fucking window shit. Right. No, I mean, that makes zero sense. Like in today's world, that would not happen. Right? I'm like, you're not doing your job. Your job is to keep him alive. Like, what the fuck? But okay. So, okay. So he's like in custody and they're interrogating him and it's a whole fucking thing. And apparently during one of the interrogations, the captain is like, are you a communist? And he says, no, I'm not a communist. I'm a Marxist. America didn't see any different at the time. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was about to say. Like, they pretty much would take that as the same thing. So, on Sunday, November 24th, the detectives were escorting Lee out through the basement of the uh, Dallas PD headquarters towards an armored car that was going to take him to a different place, right? And what had happened was this was caught on live TV. And I watched it and I was like, what the fuck? There was this nightclub operator named Jack Ruby. He comes right up and he fucking shoots him with a handgun. Just like walks right up and bam. So he's like shot in the abdomen and, you know, they lay him down on like a stretcher. They get the ambulance. They take him to Parkland Memorial Hospital, which is like, that was the same hospital as JFK. But they're basically in the same area. So like, you know, it is what it is. And it was said that uh, he died at 1.07 p.m. And what was really interesting was if you look at the picture or you watch the video, the 
officer who was right next to him in like the um it's a black and white picture so i'm gonna say the light suit i don't know what color it is if it's like a gray or whatever i'm assuming not white because you know that'd be totally not (laughs) not a good idea like what the fuck he's interviewed in one of the things i watched and he was just like it was just the weirdest thing like it just happened i tried to grab him and like just the position he was at i couldn't like you know pull him behind me to like shield him so he essentially lee got shot instead of the cop but like obviously fucking ruby was trying to shoot him yeah because he basically put the gun in his stomach it was like the gun was so close oh yeah it was so insane and he stayed with him and he was like trying to get him he's like yeah he just wasn't looking good he was super pale you know like obviously he's about to fucking die he tried to ask him like do you have anything you want to say anything at all and he said that lee just shook his head no and then died So, yeah. And then basically there's people who like instantly went conspiracy with like Ruby and all of that. But basically he said that his motive for killing him was, quote, saving Mrs. Kennedy the discomfiture of coming back to trial. So basically like doing it for Jackie, I guess is what he's saying. (laughs) So we're going to talk about the Warren Commission. What happened was a memo was sent over to LBJ's aide from Nicholas Kattensbog on November 28th. And if you're like, who is he? Like I was, because I already made my disclaimer last episode. Like, unless it's stuff for like the podcast, I don't really research hardcore into this kind of stuff. So, you know, he was a lawyer who actually served as the U.S. Attorney General during LBJ's administration. Also, I was not alive. So there's that. He said, you know, we should do this to combat this whole thing with like, conspiracy theories popping up to like prove like what happened and nicholas also said that the results of the fbi's investigation should be made public as well so he said that quote the public must be satisfied that oswald was the assassin that he did not have confederates who are still at large and four days after the memo lbj he was like yeah like we're gonna fucking do this right and there was like a whole it's there's a whole committee of people um this also included the chief of justice of the u.s to deal with this and we can talk about this for a sec so the commission met for the first time on december 5th 1963 so you know moving on to the next month now on the second floor of the National Archives building there in D.C. And these were done in closed sessions, but they were not secret sessions, which I'm like, okay. I guess people thought because they were closed, like they were being all secretive and stuff, which it's like a police investigation. Like you don't want the public and the media all up in your shit. Right. I mean, I was looking at it more of like a pragmatic, like a board meeting. Oh, yeah. You've like closed. When you say closed session, it just means that like you don't let anyone else in the room. Right. But everything that comes out of it can be known public. It's just because you're trying to get through things faster. Mm -hmm. So I will say if you would like to read their full findings, I have the wiki page for this on the sources page. But basically, I'm going to read most of their stuff for you. So number one was that the shots that killed him and wounded the governor were fired from a sixth floor window at the depository building, which, like I said, that's where they found the rifle and everything. And then the bullet that was found with the governor was like still intact. That was found in his stretcher and it matched that kind of weapon. And then also the like fragments found matched it as well. And then there was like the three shell casings. And then there was also stuff from the handgun he had that he killed the cop with. 
And it was said that Kennedy was first struck by a bullet, which entered the back of his neck, exited through the lower front portion of his neck, causing a wound which would not necessarily have been lethal. Then the president was struck a second time by a bullet that entered the right rear portion of his head, causing a massive and fatal wound, as we know. And then they talk about Governor Connolly. The next one is there's no credible evidence that the shots were fired from the triple underpass ahead of the motorcade or from any other location, according to them. And that obviously there was evidence that there was three shots fired. And then they ruled that the shots that did kill Kennedy and wounded Governor Connolly were fired by Lee. And that obviously he killed patrolman Tippett. And that was about 45 minutes after the assassination. And then they talked about Ruby. You know, they were just squashing any kind of conspiracy and stuff with them on that type of thing and said that there was no evidence of conspiracy subversion or disloyalty to the U.S. government by any federal, state or local official. And that obviously because he was shot and killed suddenly, they could not make any kind of definitive determination of his motives because he was denied, denied, denied when they were interrogating him. Lastly, they believe that the recommendations for improvements in presidential protection are compelled by the facts disclosed in this investigation. You don't fucking say. You don't fucking say. Right. All right. So now that we kind of did a bit of a rundown with the Warren Commission, I felt that this was a great place to stop for today. So next episode that goes up will be Monday. And that's when it's going to be all of the conspiracy goodness that Jessica dug up for us that I know y'all are waiting for. So now get ready for Monday. But we will see you on Monday. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.